0: Welcome to the HC Insider podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking sanctions on Russia, their impact on the global commodities markets, what this means for deglobalization more broadly, and how can the commodity trading sector manage these risks and navigate what is an increasingly complex global landscape. Guiding us through this new world of geopolitical risk is George voloshin George is a director at Aperio Intelligence, a leading corporate intelligence and risk management consultancy, and is also head of their Paris branch. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please do leave us a recommendation on the podcast platform you're listening on. That helps expand the audience and thereby enable us to continue to get great guests for the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. George, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to today, we're talking about sanctions, geopolitical risk and the impact on the commodity markets at large. Before we go too far down the down that, can you just help us understand get us all on the same page? What sanctions are in place today on Russia, as a result of the invasion of Ukraine?
1: Uh, Okay, Uh, so I will first start by saying that sanctions have been in place since 2014, so in russia next crimea But very interestingly, very importantly, they have never really extended that much to the energy sector, uh, given Russia's leading position as an energy exporter and producer. And uh, although we had some sexual sanctions in place uh, uh, back then that extended to a number of uh, activities in the oil producing industry, for example, sanctions on sp- special oil projects, as they call them, in the US, which uh, encompass Arctic, shale and uh, deep water projects, they have not been really uh, that much concerned or affected by, by the sanctions uh, since 2014 and until the invasion of Ukraine this year. So this year, um, it was really a deluge of sanctions from the Western jurisdictions, which, uh, very you know, crucially for the topic of a discussion, have been... ...quite heavy on restrictions uh, against Russian oil and gas, coal and metals. So if you look at the uh, restrictions that have been imposed since February... ...you can see that a number of countries have decided to to give up... ...all purchases of Russian oil or gas, or both. For example, you have an effective ban uh, in the US, uh, Canada and um, uh, Australia... um, ...against Russian oil and petroleum products. Again, uh, it should be noted that these countries are not very big clients of Russia... Canada did not import any oil last year, for example, Australia neither, and um, in the case of the US, the imports have been quite modest uh, in the previous years. It's quite different for the EU and the UK, none of which have exposed any sanctions on Russian oil, but they have made a commitment to impose a phased, uh, phased-in embargo on Russian, Russian oil, Uh, So in the case of the UK, it's by the end of 2022. At least that's the commitment from the Boris Johnson administration. In the case of the EU, it's quite difficult. Well, I think we'll talk about it later. In the case of natural gas, it's uh, quite similar. So in the case of the US, Canada, so Canada, nothing. US, there is an import ban. Australia as well. In the case of uh, UK and EU, it's quite similar. Again, a commitment, but it's a bit difficult because uh, gas is uh, much more important than oil for European consumers. Coal metals, again, some restrictions here and there
0: yeah so that's the commodities piece but there have been more broad sweeping sanctions that have meant that that picture is a little more complex and challenging and this leads to self-sanctioning which we'll come on to but you've essentially got US government the G7 and the EU who have more broadly, as I understand it, you know, taking other sanctions such as preventing foreign investment in Russia, payment methods, etc. Can you just talk to those as well? Because those are very consequential for the broader Russian and global economies, and also play into whether or not there is a particular ban on a particular commodity, it still introduces complexity and, and the self-sanctioning piece.
1: Yeah, of course. So I've only mentioned direct sanctions that really target certain operations with these commodities. But there are also indirect sanctions that, for example, concern the access of Russian affiliated vessels to European and generally Western ports. So there have been restrictions in that space as well. For example, in the EU, they only left some carve-outs for humanitarian goods, agricultural imports and energy. You have sanctions that concern The Russian financial sector, which again have a direct uh, implication for energy sales, because energy, of course, is sold uh, through the formal banking system and you get paid into your bank account. And they have sanctions against Russia's leading banks, such as Burbank, which has been sanctioned, for example, in the US and the UK, with blocking sanctions in place, but not the EU for the time being. You have sanctions against, uh, for example, Alpha Bank, the largest uh, private loan bank in Russia. So all of that kind of contributes to uh, your ability to sell oil on terms that you previously used. In the case of other restrictions that impact the Russian commodity trade, you can mention, for example, restrictions on insurance and reinsurance, for example, the, the ban in the European Union, which took effect a few days ago, on 15th of May, which prohibits European companies from engaging in activities with certain Russian companies that are state-controlled, including, very interestingly, Gazprom Neft and um, Rosneft. Uh, again, there is a carve-out for energy, with some very you know, strict restrictions around what is permissible. But this has left to a heavy round of self-sanctioning, because many Western companies clearly prefer not to take the risk, of breaching any of those sanctions, because they're so difficult to understand and navigate. And we've seen self-sanctioning for this very regulatory reason. In addition to self-sanctioning due to uh, moral considerations and the fact of buying Russian oil or gas, which can help Russia to continue its war in Ukraine, this is also a factor. We've seen several companies being unable to unload their cargo at Western ports, because... uh, poor people were just protesting against it and were not uh, really ready to to do that job. So again, it's due to various reasons, but sanctions, of course, they're, they're multifaceted. Uh, they not only direct, but also indirect, and they translate into uh, very severe complications in terms of, you know, getting paid, getting your goods out of the country. Uh, many companies that transport goods and they're kind of they're not able to work with Russia anymore because they don't have insurance cover. So all of that kind of feeds into the general picture that we have today.
0: Mm. And just a question on mechanics, and, and I guess this plays into that self-sanctioning just to understand a bit more. If you were to strike a deal today for delivery, let's say in two months, and that deal was perfectly fine with regards to sanctions today, but in two months' time a sanction comes in that prohibits that deal, or let's say a month's time, does that mean that deal is now inviable, Or are these sanctions sort of... I guess they, they don't take into account historical deals? Just, just you know, I know that might sound a bit of a stupid question, but...
1: No, it's it's a good question. Uh, well, normally when you have new sanctions that are adopted, they have two um, very important provisions that actually help deals have been concluded to go forward. So the first of them is um, a wind-down period, where, especially in the case of the US uh, Treasury. It's a very common process. For example, when there were sanctions against Rusal in 2018, and there were sanctions in place for about a year and a half before it was delisted. There were uh, those winded periods, uh, normally extended to 90 days, allowing uh, Russell's customers to get aluminium from Russell and pay for it. Another important provision, which is again a a common feature in all sanctions regimes, whether we look at the UK, the EU or the US, is to allow deals that have been concluded before the, the ban to proceed as normal. So... For example, if you have a new sanctions in place that start let's say tomorrow, they will normally exempt any deals concluded before to- before tomorrow from the new restrictions. so you can potentially get the deal carried out uh, as planned, uh, but you cannot engage in any new deals post the sanctions date
0: yeah, yeah and and have we seen organizations therefore do long tenor deals to import Russian gas and oil so they would be protected in that event?
1: Uh, so, we uh, have seen cases in which, for example, even, you know, association also kind of applies to non-Western companies, like, you know, companies from China or India. We've seen a number of uh, Chinese refineries, for example, saying that they will no longer conclude spot uh, deals with Russia because they, for example, they fear just, you know, the, the, the lack of, you know, funding from banks, the lack of insurance. And um, so, for them, it's kind of um, very difficult in these circumstances, but they will honor their long-term uh, supply commitments. We, I haven't seen any specific cases in which uh, companies were engaging in long-term deals after the invasion of Ukraine, to kind of protect themselves against future sanctions. But if certainly seen cases which companies have said very clearly, we will continue to buy oil and gas and whatever coal under long-term deals until they expire, but we'll refrain from any short-term deals because we're not sure of being able to renew them, to roll them over, or of securing funding in these changed circumstances, in Mm. which banks can clearly just refuse from the outset to participate.
0: Right. Thanks for that. Okay, so sanctions have a a storied history, and not all of it very, you know, effective, if you'd like, in terms of changing countries, organizations, behaviors, Um, often, you know, well, at least the sanctions in place around the various countries, you know, those countries that have them today, the elites are relatively insulated from the impacts, and it's generally the general population that suffers. In this case, it seems like it's it's quite well it is unprecedented just the level and unity of sanctions on russia before we talk about the commodities impact are we seeing and these do take and we've all been warned they do take quite some time to take an effect but are we seeing the sanctions having any impact on russia's economy that russia's behaviors um, and then can we walk into what it's doing to the commodity markets. Certainly, we know the impact on energy prices and, and fears and scares in Europe and beyond as a result. But can you just talk about the impact of the sanctions, what you're seeing today?
1: Yeah, as you, take, as you said, uh, they usually take some time to materialise. But in this case, they're really unprecedented against the G20 economy. The impact will be very, very painful. It's already be- beginning to be. Uh, so we've seen, for example, you know, predictions regarding inflation, Regarding GDP growth, for example, this year, the Russian Ministry of Economy estimates that the GDP may contract by, you know, about at least 10%, maybe even as much as 14%, which will effectively erase a decade of growth. Uh, We have to remember that since 2014, the Russian economy has been growing very, very slowly, below its real potential, and growth has been really under 2% every year. Russia can certainly grow much higher than that. Uh, Because of the lack of interest from investors, because of sanctions that they're Uh, impact on specific industries. So in this example that we've seen today, uh, we're going to have much more impact on the whole of the Russian economy, on an average Russian consumer. We're seeing uh, inflation really soar, inflation soaring everywhere across the world, but in the case of Russia, it will probably be close to 18-20% this year. I think the authorities acknowledged that quite openly because the, the notes were difficult to hide it from anyone. We'll see underinvestment across the board because many companies are withdrawing. Also, for non sanctions reasons, because they just don't want to be associated with the Russian market anymore. We've seen sales of you know, assets uh, across the entire spectrum of the economy. And the government will be really able uh, will not be able to find easy replacements for that. It's very difficult to know how much elites will be uh, affected. Of course, we've seen a number of Russian oligarchs sanctioned by the West uh, and losing access to their to their assets. Again, we're talking about asset freezes for now. We're not talking about asset seizures or confiscations. although this is um, quite possible, uh, these governments are working on plans to you know potentially forfeit assets from Russian oligarchs to help Ukraine rebuild itself. We've seen some plans for, for, for the same with regard to the Russian central bank, whose assets have been frozen in the Western uh, jurisdictions. I think it's very difficult, really, to understand how much elites have been impacted, because elites, uh, they usually have various ways of uh, shielding themselves from the sanctions effect. In the case of any uh, Russian oligarchs, they're probably much more exposed than Russian officials, because uh, the latter's wealth is mostly within Russia, whereas oligarchs have a global footprint, and they have, you also know, mentions corporate assets everywhere. But certainly, I mean, if you are an oligarch and you lose a few billion here and there, you don't really become poor overnight. You probably become multimillionaire rather than billionaire. In the case of an you know, ordinary Russians, uh, they will probably feel most of the brunt as um, time goes by because of unemployment. I think just in Moscow, it was an April estimate, the mayor said, that the capital could lose up to 100,000 people just because of Western companies withdrawing from Russia, like McDonald's, you know, some car manufacturing plants in the Moscow region, etc. So the impact will be very, very painful, indeed.
0: Yeah. Is there any sense that it's the... uh, Self-sanctioning, it's quite a nebulous term, because a lot of it is actually enforced... Sanctioning, as a result of other mechanisms like payments and insurance, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, is there any sense that that's the more powerful uh, sort of pillar of what's going on here, and that might wane over time if it's not necessarily one hundred percent enforced? You know, is that is that anything that could you you see there?
1: Well, self sanction is clearly more powerful, uh, impactful than sanctions themselves, because of those who self-sanction. There are a number that do that not for regulatory reasons or legal reasons. They do that because of perceptions, uh, so they don't want to be perceived as enabling the Russian government and its war in Ukraine, or they just think that the risk is just too high for them to handle it professionally and effectively enough, and they decide not to invest any more money into managing something that will probably be a very poor return on this investment. So uh, this is a normal reaction, I would say, from the business community, because they just want to... T- t- cut potential losses and not expose themselves too much when it t- comes to future behavior it's quite difficult really to say how this sanctioning story can evolve whether there will be more of it whether it will be at the same level as today or whether it will wane over time and companies just in you know, a kind of learning how to live in this new world of even tougher sanctions than before and probably sticking to what is um, permissible in the sanctions regulations rather than what is clearly not permissible it very much depends on what Western governments will do. One of, um, of uh, one of the, the most powerful tools that the U.S. administration has, for example, is the threat of secondary sanctions. It's when you prohibit foreign persons, non-U.S. persons, whether companies or individuals, from engaging in any activity with sanctioned persons, uh, whether, again, companies or individuals. For example, you can prohibit a, a, a non-European, uh, non-Western company from doing business with Rosneft. We've seen, for example, in uh, 2021, 2020, sorry, a case in which the US Treasury sanctioned a subsidiary of Rosneft for doing deals with Venezuela's Pedavesa for buying oil from Venezuela. And that was on the basis of, um, Venezuela sanctions, which effectively uh, uh, leave a door open for secondary sanctions against non-American companies. So what happened next is that Rosneft decided to sell those subsidiaries to different people to different companies and clearly disengage from the Venezuelan market because they would not be willing to take the risk of being sanctioned themselves because of that. So if there is this policy in place it will effectively reinforce the message that the US government is not going to allow this activity in any country and self-sanctioning may in fact get even tougher than what we see today. So the behavior is really very difficult to, to forecast. It very much depends on how the situation goes in general, where whether the war ends and what terms, and whether there is any prospect of a political arrangement between Russia and Ukraine and Russia and the West.
0: Right. Thank you. Okay, so let's just for a moment pause on what are the broad brush impacts that you're seeing on the commodity markets today, and are we seeing organisations start to, is, is there any sort of element of evasion going on? You know, you've got these sort of cargoes doing these pretty ping pong light trips around the Mediterranean, et cetera. Can you just, you know, but first off, what are the impacts that we're seeing in a, in a broad sweeping sense?
1: Uh, so, of course, impacts are quite diverse. So the first impact is on the price of commodities. Again, we should not forget the general context that we're in with the post-pandemic recovery. Again, pandemic is not, not really that well managed in some places. And you have China, for example, which has um, uh, a recent history of new lockdowns in Shanghai and other other cities across the country. So it's um, a continuing story, which is taking its toll on the level of demand, which again is uh, something that influences very much the level of pricing across the world economy. And you have this war in Ukraine, which uh, only contributes to to high prices. So prices, of course, have uh, gone higher because there is an expectation that Russian oil may, over time, uh, speaking of oil, uh, disappear to a certain extent from the global market. This could be possible if uh, the EU imposed an oil embargo, which is currently in the cards. It's in the six sanctions package, which has currently being discussed, at the level of European leaders. There is no clear idea of when it will be adopted, if at all. But analysts are also already predicting a progressive loss of Russian oil due to self-sanctioning, due to direct sanctions. And we could potentially see, you know, a loss of uh, maybe up to four four million barrels per day due to Russia uh, not being able to sell any more oil to its external customers. Uh, This is driving the price up. Uh, I've seen a few projections by banks. So one bank saying that oil will average $125 per barrel in the third quarter. Another one saying it will be about $130 per barrel. So the general, I think, forecasts that oil will be quite expensive going forward later this year although I've seen, I think the general forecast for the whole of the year is about $100, $105 per barrel. So the, the prices have been very heavily impacted. The impacts have been even higher on some other commodities, such as, for example, uh, some metals which Russia exports very heavily. You know, we've seen prices rising mm. for a, a nickel, you know, uh, palladium. So th- these are metals that are also kind of Key source of of uh, export revenue for Russia, and uh, you've seen that with fertilizers, and you know, the price is sh- uh, shooting up by forty percent, uh, because Russia and Belarus are two major exporters of, uh, for example, potash fertilizers, uh, and some countries like you know Brazil, uh, Argentina, they they need that you know th- those uh, imports from these two countries, have traditional relationships with these two countries. So there have been imports across, uh, impacts across the board. We've also seen impacts due to supply disruptions, because Russia needs to restructure its export routes, and now that, for example, the European Union is no longer allowing Russian steel to be sold in its market, and Russia has to find other ways to sell um, steel and other banned you know, products to other to markets. And so this is also creating a lot of an oppression on the price, because uh, if you restructure those export routes, you will certainly get a higher transportation costs, higher logistics costs. You have to take your goods to longer distances, use other modes of transport that are less economical. So this is, of course, leaving a general impact on the level of pricing. And what we've seen uh, next to that, uh, so probably it's uh, one of the reasons why the prices are so high, is that there are deficits across you know, certain sect- sectors of the commodity market. We've seen, for example, reports of, you know, deficits of um, agricultural goods in certain developing economies which could in fact lead to to hunger strikes to social instability. So all of that is you know, having a very um, taking a very heavy toll on the social social instability of certain countries in the developing world, so North Africa and the Middle East. So yeah, I think so we'll probably the, these are the key you know, the key impacts. So pricing, the abundance of goods, logistical problems that cause delays in delivery, you have uh, you know countries that are particularly vulnerable have to uh, decrease their imports because they no longer pay for them. The risk of you know instability in some places. We've seen this in you know, a plane out at you know, the port of Odessa in Ukraine, where you know Ukraine not been able to export its wheat, uh, which has kind of been held hostage to the war. So yeah, dramatic situation across the border, I would say.
0: Yeah. Okay. We'll 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 skip evasion in the in the we know it's going on, but in the in the interests of time. Okay. So. Let's assume that I think we all assume that this war is going to continue for, if not months, maybe even longer. Right. With that in mind, and these sanctions therefore continue to be in place, potentially more added. I want to talk about sort of what this means for Russia's role in the global markets, um, its current institutions. The first of which, you know, is, is OPEC Plus. You know, which played such a crucial role in 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 the, in the pandemic of of, uh, of of oil price issues. What does this mean for Russia's position within OPEC Plus?
1: Well, Russia is clearly going to lose its uh, clout vis-à-vis its um, partners within OPEC, part of the bl- uh, larger OPEC Plus tactical alliance, which they cobbled together in twenty sixteen. It's uh, not very clear how this will play out in the medium term, because, for example, while w- w- we saw a 10% decline in the Russian oil production in April, Russia is forecasting some, some pickup in May, so it could have lost about a million barrels in April, and it is expected to recover about up to half of that in May, according to the Russian Energy Ministry uh, forecast. But in any case, Russia's position is not particularly convenient uh, or stable, and Russia's clearly going to become much less important relevant for OPEC plus than it used to be. For now, uh, Russia's key partners within the alliance, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, have been sticking to this relationship because they clearly understand that with Russia, OPEC plus will be even less relevant but it's um if Russia's position is going to shrink further which is likely to happen because I don't think that sanctions would be lifted anytime soon and um so this story probably continue into next year and well we'll see what what happens next but the current forecast that I have is that effectively Russia's position will well dwindle further and Saudi Arabia I think I have saw some announcements from Saudi Arabia saying that it will is planning to ramp up its production considerably by 2027 it's already pumping a record amount of oil if you look at the past two years and it probably got to move closer to its record set in 2020 uh, when it was pumping close to 12 million barrels per day at the height of the the price with russia over over quotas so i think russia is going to really lose attractiveness and appeal and importance within opec plus and especially if the biden administration finds a way to accommodate the positions of Saudi Arabia and the UE what is now trying to do mend fences with those two jurisdictions in this case Russia will probably be even more isolated
0: mm. and it's also having uh, further consequences in the biden administration's approach to Venezuela and indeed Iran
1: indeed um so it's quite interesting because we've seen in the past week an announcement from uh, no it's probably rather the media reporting that but the White House was not really uh, trying to deny any any of those stories. The Biden administration has given a license to Chevron to potentially start some operations in Venezuela, with a clear view to easing the the oil price. I think uh, this is not really a very easy move because uh, because of you know, the Republicans' very anti-Maduro stance, and they effectively criticised the Biden administration for trying to accommodate the Maduro administration uh, with this move. But Biden, I think, um, his team clearly understands that the need to um, take some steps to alleviate pressure on the price of oil, which translates into high gas prices in the US, and uh, with the midterm elections cycle approaching in the US, uh, the position of the current administration is not really that solid. In the case of Iran, uh, it's much more complicated, because there is this discussion going on with the new Iranian president about a revival of the JCPOA agreement of 2016, which was effectively killed by Trump when he withdrew the US from the deal in 2018. It's it's very unclear whether this deal will materialize in a different format because of uh, Iran's reluctance to make any concessions to the US before the US lifts sanctions. There are a few blockages around the status of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, which are heavily sanctioned in the US and which also on the State Department's list of foreign terrorist organizations. If there is some movement there, we'll probably see some and a willingness to engage in in a new round of discussions and reach a compromise. But it's all very, very uncertain. And Mm. of course, there are parallel talks between the US and Saudi Arabia. It was just a recent announcement that there could be a visit by Biden to Riyadh for the GCC Council, where he could meet the Crown Prince and potentially uh, re-establish old relationship with Saudi Arabia. Mm. All that uh, with with a single objective in mind. To uh, stabilize the oil market and to bring more oil uh, online.
0: Yeah, Mr. Putin's done a done a lot for world unity, hasn't he? Um, I think uh, much to his dismay. But okay, so we've done a lot on the European energy crisis and and the sort of the role of of the Russian sanctions in that. So I just want to zoom in on just one aspect, which is natural gas. Do you see growing unity around an import ban? Do you think the the EU can solve therefore that deficit in this upcoming winter through LNG?
1: I would say that gas trade is the most complex issue on the European Union's agenda uh, when it comes to Russia. So it's it's really an area in in which uh, in which there is probably no unity at all. So it's um, something that is um, been tackled with a lot of uh, you know vigor by the European Commission, trying to find comprom- compromises between member states. It's difficult to uh, reach consensus on the oil embargo, and I think, given that Europe is much more dependent on Russian gas than on Russian oil, it will be much more difficult to envisage any anything short term in terms of uh, gas trade. Of course, it will be impossible to replace Russian gas in the medium, in the short and medium term. We're just talking about you know extremely high volumes of gas flowing from Russia, using the Gazprom's pipeline infrastructure. So what it uh, ships to, to Germany, to, to Poland through Belarus, uh, through Ukraine as well. There are already discussions underway about um, buying more LNG and we've seen Germany making an, an outreach to Qatar to ex- import more LNG from Qatar. Germany's trying also to reinforce its uh, energy independence by building, at least planning to build, two LNG terminals whereas it has none uh, compared with other uh, member states. It's a very long-term issue, I would say. And this winter will probably be a time when we will see the real effectiveness and solidity of European unity, whether Europe will really present a common front against Russia. How Russia will react is also a major, major problem. So far, we've seen uh, reports of companies, European companies, really trying to comply as much as possible with European sanctions, but at the same time, not been ready to risk the relationships with Gazprom. And if we talk about this um, controversial decree by Putin, which kind of switches the currency of uh, gas contracts from euros and dollars to, to rubles, according to recent reports, about half of all European consumers uh, importing companies have switched to rubles. So have put in place mechanisms to be able to pay in euros, uh, dollars, and then in rubles. This shows the complexity of the whole situation. I don't think the European Commission will have enough authority, enough power, because we're talking here about hard economics to convince member states and their key importers to comply with sanctions 100%. So we have to have to be a period of um, transition with uh, concessions being made by the European Union, and uh, Russian gas will remain for the time being uh, the major source of imports as far as far as Europe is concerned.
0: Mm. Thank you. Okay, so before we sort of come full circle back to the the narrative of deglobalization, And, you know, whether that's real and what's what that means for this sector. Can you also just I just want to talk about China and in India, is this ultimately a boon to those those countries who are net importers of energy and suddenly they've got a, a cheaper source in the Russian markets now because there's less competition for that for that energy?
1: Absolutely. Since as, as both countries have been taking advantage of uh, the self-sanctioning narrative that's been playing out since February, uh, the sanctions regulations have been becoming increasingly tough and um, strict. So we've seen reports I know, of, of India, for example, buying Russian oil at heavy discounts, up to 30 percent. China trying to negotiate convenient pricing for itself as well. These two countries are clear winners of this, this situation. That said, it's important to bear in mind that those countries are also vulnerable from the point of view of sanctions, and so we've also seen seen some self-sanctioning by Chinese and uh, Indian importers, like you know, refineries or state energy companies, have been really trying to navigate the complex landscape we have today with um, you know, a lot of caution. But speaking of a you know, potential trade evolution between Russia and these two countries, effectively India has ramped up its oil purchases considerably compared with the uh, pre-war periods. And we know that it's paying uh, much less than uh, what Russia w- would like to, to get paid. It's insisting very heavy discounts. China also is trying to fill its reserves with more Russian oil. And I suppose that although no, 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 the price of those purchases is probably buying oil at very heavy discounts too. So these two countries are clear winners. The next question that comes naturally on the table is what will happen from the perspective of Western governments. If Western governments, especially the US, decide to try to deprive Russia of its access to oil revenue, they will have to tackle the issue of secondary sanctions and... Russian relationship with India and China in particular. And we have to drive this point home that they, these countries should stop buying Russian oil or stop buying as much Russian oil, as happened in the case of Iran, for example, where even in China, which always, you know, criticized US sanctions and tried to strike an independent line of conduct, even China uh, back then pulled out from all of its projects in Iran. And really, if there was any oil bought, it was bought uh, using evasion schemes by very, very small refineries that were not really associated with uh, CNPC or key energy players. So the future of this trade is uncertain. But for now, these two countries are clearly winners of the situation because they can buy oil at heavy discounts. And they've been doing that very, very openly.
0: Mm. We've seen sort of mixed messages from China, at lesser extent India, about support for, or at least their views on, on Russia's invasion. Do we have any sense of whether they're increasingly accepting of it or they're applying pressure just through non-public channels?
1: Yeah, I think the both countries are pretty worried about what Russia has been doing in Ukraine. I think China is particularly uneasy about Russia's choice to initiate this war. We saw, you know, the meeting between Putin and Xi, um, in, in Beijing, uh, before the war, uh, where, uh, Xi, you know, said that the, uh, bilateral cooperation Corporation had uh, no bounds. It was going to develop very actively across all the key areas of, you know, of, uh, uh mutual interest. For China, this war is really a big distraction. China is also concerned about, whether it could be you know, held accountable for keeping a good relationship with Russia, as if it was providing support to, to the Russian economy to evade sanctions, to evade these restrictions. I think China is trying to convey um, its uh, position publicly, through diplomatic channels, through private channels. Uh, it's been very cautious uh, since the beginning of the war, although we've seen also some open criticism in the Chinese press, very interestingly, not from you know, current officials, but from uh, former officials who retired, but he would never have allowed themselves to express this position without, I think, some uh, encouragement or at least a promise of no uh, retaliation from the Chinese uh, authorities. Uh, so I think both countries are really very worried because this war is having implications for everyone. Again, it's um, it could potentially accelerate recessionary trends in a number of countries, a number of economies, including the US. And so it's not really a good thing for China, which is a major exporter, and India, which... Depends on um, energy imports to a very significant extent. Like, for oil, it uh, buys 85% of oil. And for India, really, the real main risk is not so much whether it can buy Russian oil or not Russian oil, but rather the level of pricing it gets from its partners. So, both countries uh, cannot be happy with what's happening. And I think, especially China, they're trying to convey this uh, unease to the Russian government privately.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. So, so let's talk about deglobalization. And In fact, I attended a lecture this week by a, a leading economist and uh, senatorial hopeful, where he described the world potentially going down a two-system route, where one which is dominated by the US and the West and its trading partners, and another that is dominated by China and its trading partners, which would have profound consequences for prices, global free trade, and the commodities sector where do you and aperio stand are we in a moment of deglobalization the individual mentioned that um, you know we might be looking back at the, the the 92 to 2022 period those 30 years a period of he described it as as global complacency but a period of of, of sort of a golden age of global free trade where where is your views on that
1: yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a very topical and also complicated area. I've also listened to a couple of your own podcasts uh, where people were dis- discussing this issue. And I think everyone has different opinions about globalization, whether it's real or it's just an, in um, a fiction in what direction we're going as, um, as a global economy. Uh, well, I think we're clearly seeing some globalization trends playing out, which are not necessarily due to the Ukraine war, but rather, you know, they began with the, well, the trade wars that, for example, Donald Trump uh, launched uh, against China, uh, his you know his commitment to making America great again by bringing back production from certain countries in which it was historically based. So this discourse, kind of nationalist discourse, protestant discourse, is quite uh, the main driver of these trends. And then we saw the pandemic, which made clear to everyone that the current system that we're in is not necessarily the most reliable and many cases when you have production based elsewhere, you could become dependent on those countries and their ability to ensure production and exports. And if there is a huge crisis like COVID-19, this becomes a real problem. Uh, and so many countries have been trying to onshore foreign based production to the extent possible, even at the cost of higher prices and higher cost of labor. I think uh, I would probably agree with this assessment by, by um, this lecture you mentioned, that there will be Two uh kind of trade two global kind of trade zones, one dominated by the United States as the world's largest economy, where the western camp uh, being there of course, and you uh, u s allies um, in the across the world like you know japan australia new zealand all mm, coming together to make this happen and then another block dominated by china the world's second largest economy in terms of um, you know, purchasing power parity, and all the key players in you know, gravitating around china, including russia. So Russia is clearly going in the other direction. It's going to be dependent on China in many respects. I think this is a good assessment uh, of the situation. I would say that deglobalization is probably too strong of a term for the current period. So we're still in a world which is very heavily globalized. But what we'll see is that we'll see an emergence of um, regional blocks and sub-blocks where trade will be easier and that it will be difficult where the other blocks, not part of the same trade alliance, and this will effectively uh, divide the world into, in, in uh, with China being the second pole of attraction for developing economies, and those are not aligned with the US uh, geopolitical interests.
0: Mm. Yes, you also mentioned that switch from just-in-time economies to just-in-case economies, which ties back to that onshoring of supply chains and inevitably increased prices. So the, the commodities industry, at least my tenure in it as a, as a recruiter, has thrived in the last those 30 years of either global complacency or golden age of free trade, whichever you pick your poison, in, in its ability to optimize the, the global commodity supply chains. And, you know, we've talked throughout this episode, you know, you've Fertilizer from Russia going to Brazil, etc. What does this mean for the commodity trading industry as the world, as they navigate sanctions today and presumably more sanctions coming, as they navigate deglobalization? I mean, organizationally alone, how should commodity traders, commodity trading entities prepare themselves for this new normal?
1: Um, so they have very difficult tasks to do, to, to to be prepared and stay prepared uh, in the future. So again, as you said, geopolitical complexity is something that has been taken for granted for many years. The world is globalized. Even when I look back at the Russia sanctions, the first ones from 2014, we look back at I know, Venezuela sanctions, there was... um. A period of time in which I think commodity players, like the big commodity trading houses, were all kind of complacent about what Western governments could potentially do to disrupt their business models. So even though back then it was kind of assumed that trade will continue because it's vital to the world global economy, and that you have to comply with sanctions, of course, you have to do it from a very strict legal point of view, but you are not obliged or asked to do anything beyond that. It's a bit different today. In the case of Russia, we've seen a major companies like you know, Glinko or Vitol, deciding not to buy any more crude from Rosneft, for example, because of e restrictions, which, if you look at them very legalistically, You know, they don't necessarily prohibit trade between uh, Russia and the EU from, from Rosneft, from Gazprom, Neft, but they do create a lot of complexities and complications for companies to operate normally. So companies, again, preferring not to risk the reputations and just uh, you know discontinue their, their operations without you know any extra work. So I think in this climate, companies will have to be very serious about geopolitics. They have to look out for any geopolitical developments. Very careful about what's about what's, what would ha- happen realistically to to them. So do a bit more horizon scanning for new trends. So you have task forces that can easily you know gather to analyze the situation, how it's developing, what are the impacts for their business. They have to be very serious about compliance and legal. So compliance is really an area which is gaining in importance and relevance. It's something that's increasingly important and sometimes it even outweighs commercial considerations. You have to be really very, very serious about your compliance obligations and compliance expectations of regulators across the world. I think, well, deglobalization is certainly going to have um, a variety of impacts on uh, these various companies. On the one hand, higher prices are a boon for their business. On the other hand, as the world gets more compartmentalized, uh, their role uh, becomes diminished. And so it's very difficult to know what will be the trade-off, whether we'll lose more than we'll gain. Um, also, we should not forget about renewables. Renewables are also part of the uh, of our future, and renewables are effectively a factor of de-globalization which can make the importance of these 3D houses even less relevant because less energy will have to flow across borders more will be produced domestically through renewables uh, various renewable technologies so all of that will have an impact i think uh, speaking of today uh, so companies need to, to be very vigilant about short-term and medium-term risks and also do some you know, contingency planning, horizon scanning, to understand where geopolitics is headed. It's very difficult. It's probably the most difficult exercise that you can ever do. And I plan for the future for maybe 20, 30 years ahead. Try to understand where the new trends will be in 10 years' time. But it's important, and these companies have to engage in this thinking as well as uh, any other company uh, operating multi- uh, internationally.
0: Mm. Are you seeing, again, a lot of this is kind of new and quite sudden for this sector. Of course, historically, they've always had to be compliant. There's been growing compliance requirements, growing transparency. But are you seeing these organizations thinking about, from a personnel standpoint, are you now needing a head of governmental relations, whatever it might be, I don't know what the the, the title would be necessarily, but being organizationally set up to map, to process and digest all of this very fast-moving, regulatory, geopolitical, sort of disrupted world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look at the the number of people employed in compliance, legal by you know, various companies and you know, banks, insurers, and then corporates and look at trading houses. I think the preference always been to have more people dealing with um, pure risk management, so trying to mitigate your trading losses, which, which you know based on uh, volatility pricing, etc. Not really that much invested into having more compliance, and legal people. So this is going to change, I think, um, also require input from people who understand geopolitics, understand political affairs. Not only within a given country, like you know, we do for GR. We're trying to see whether the government is going you know, to change its taxation policy, for example, whether it's g- going to take a different stance towards you know domestic oil production. But also thinking about larger trends that cross the borders and trying to see whether specific countries will be disadvantaged by certain global trends that they are not necessarily concerned about directly, but they will impact them indirectly. So I think, yeah, yeah, there will clear need for people who have uh, a good, solid understanding of legal risk, of you know, compliance obligations, especially sanctions, because really, I think for those companies, corruption and sanctions are the two main risks that need to be managed. And we've seen cases in which companies have been, you know, Found guilty of corruption increasingly, and sanctions effectively are an area of, of a growing, growing, uh, complexity, growing concern. But also, in addition to that, people with an understanding of uh, political risks and how they impact your business in, in in every possible way. Yeah, clearly, there is a need for those two types of people.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I think that's the difference, isn't it? I mean, certainly, we've seen organisations build and grow their compliance and legal capabilities in house. But it's really that element of political risk now where, you know, you just around the world, right, you've got a, a consequential election coming up in Brazil that could entirely change the last six or seven years worth of, of liberalization in those energy markets. Right, I mean, just the 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 complexity today compared to maybe ten years ago, when we all thought there was just a a forward march of liberalising energy and and commodity markets, is 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 astounding. I assume you at Aperio have seen the, a, a significant rise in demand for your services.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have uh, you know, many clients worried about the future of their supply chains, for example. Trying to restructure them in ways that will make them more resilient. Um, in the case of an extra you know, health emergency like COVID, also many companies trying to be more vigilant and more you know, prepared for any contingencies involving their foreign operations. For example, there is instability in certain region in which they operate. How they should react today to make their operations more resilient, uh, and their business more 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 you know, less vulnerable to politically-induced negative developments like disruptions. Uh, Certainly, so I think this skill is is very important in the world where politics has become so toxic, divisive, and where we're seeing a much more rivalry today between great powers, between regional powers, than in the previous decade. So it's really a world of, you know, of great instability for, for many years to come in which we have to live and you know, be prepared for any contingencies
0: mm. May you live in interesting times as the Chinese say um, <laughs> it, uh, it's definitely um, the landscape is changing well I think you've given a, a demonstration of how we've just scratched the surface of this topic but you've given an, us an excellent overview of uh, what's going on now and how this is going to be an important trend and topic going forwards and I do look forward to having you, you back on and In a year or so, and we can get an update on on how these things have played out. It's a very consequential moment for the world, and and also the commodity markets themselves. And yes, the the challenges ahead are are mind-boggling for these organisations to navigate. But you know, George, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you very much. With great pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.